Hello and welcome to a special episode of the CBGS podcast brought to you by Aspen Weight. What makes this a special episode is today we're going to be talking about D-Day, commemorating D-Day, 75 years on. I'm actually away at the time of recording this podcast, so I'm leaving you in the capable hands of Mr. Ross Curry, marketing manager of Aspen Weight, and the man himself, Paul Waite. But before you speak to those guys, we're going to kick off with a tune from World War II. It's a satirical number by a man called Noel Coward. And this song is called Don't Let's Be Beastly to the Germans. It was a favourite of Winston Churchill's, so much so that once when Winston saw Noel Coward play this live at a private party, he demanded three reprises. Let's be beastly to the Germans When our victory is ultimately won It was just those nasty Nazis Who persuaded them to fight And their Beethoven and Bach Are really far worse than their bite Let's be meek to them And turn the other cheek to them And try to bring out their latent sense of fun Let's give them full air parity And treat the rats with charity But don't let's be beastly to the Hun. We must be kind, and with an open mind, we must endeavor to find a way to let the Germans know that when the war is over, they are not the ones who have to pay. We must be sweet, and tactful, and discreet, and when they've suffered defeat, we mustn't let them feel upset or ever get the feeling that we're cross with them or hate them. Our future policy must be to reinstate them. Don't let's be beastly to the Germans when we've definitely got them on the run. Let us treat them very kindly, as we would a valued friend. We might send them out some bishops as a form of lease and lend. Let's be sweet to them and day by day repeat to them that sterilization simply isn't done. Let's help the dirty swine again to occupy the Rhine again, but don't let's be beastly to the Hun. We must be just and win their love and trust, and in addition we must be wise and ask the conquered lands to join our hands to aid them. That would be a wonderful surprise. For many years they've been in floods of tears, Because the poor little dears have been so wronged And only longed to cheat the world, deplete the world And beat the world to blazes This is the moment when we ought to sing their praises Don't let's be beastly to the Germans For you can't deprive a gangster of his gun Though they've been a little naughty To the Czechs and Poles and Dutch I don't suppose those countries really minded very much Let's be free with them and share the BBC with them. We mustn't prevent them basking in the sun. Let's soften their defeat again and build their blasted fleet again. But don't let's be beastly to the Hun. Don't let's be beastly to the Germans when the age of peace and plenty has begun. We must send them steel and oil and coal and everything they need. For their peaceable intentions can be always guaranteed. Let's employ with them a sort of strength through joy with them. They're better than us at honest manly fun. 
Let's let them feel us swell again and bum us all to hell again. But don't let's be beastly to the hun. Thank you very much for that, Drew. I'm here with Paul Waits in the meeting room, ready for another episode of the Complete Business Growth Service podcast. And this week, we are discussing the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings with your host, Paul Waits. It's not something I know a great deal about, um, probably being from the wrong generation, perhaps. So without further ado, I will hand you over to our resident historian. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Ross. Uh, I think one of, one of the things that's quite interesting about uh, the Second World War is um, I was watching a quiz program the other day and uh, the, the host very uh, kindly pointed out that um, uh, a Pet Shop Boys record uh, was in fact further away from the uh, f- further away from when someone was born than, um, than, the, the, than uh, the war was and obviously as I was born in 1960 uh, I was reminded actually uh, the war had only ended 15 years uh, before I was born so uh whatever reason I've always been very interested in uh, both the World Wars particularly the World War 2 and I tend to watch a lot of um, uh, old movies so I watched The Longest Day last night which is uh, a, a, a film which is about every famous actor of the 50s in John Wayne and uh, Robert Mitchum etc so um, that's all about D-Day uh, not very historically accurate but there we are I think one of the things that's really poignant about D-Day, um, 75th anniversary was last, well, yesterday, um, is that only five years earlier, um, in June 1940, uh, we effectively stood alone uh, with the Americans, obviously neutral and out of the war, despite Churchill's uh, aggressive attempts to try to get Roosevelt to help us. And I think one of the things I often think about when people complain about today uh uh, from a sort of betting point of view, I often think about. I'm sure they wouldn't have been allowed to do this, but if Paddy Power were running a book on who's going to win the war, and I think the Beastly Germans would have been something like a thousand to one on, uh, and England would have. I don't think you would have put a pound on a thousand to one, to be honest with you. So it just goes to show that. Um, and of course, what was very interesting, which has parallels with today, is you had um, the appeasement policy of Neville Chamberlain. Uh, very much abetted by Lord Halifax, who was uh, the darling of the Tory party at the time and a personal friend of George V, sorry, personal friend of George VI. Uh, And so basically the Conservative Party very much wanted Lord Halifax to become the Prime Minister uh, after Chamberlain basically was considered to be generally rather useless and totally unfit to be a wartime leader. Uh, but uh, the Labour Party, led by Clement Attlee, wouldn't have it. So it was effectively a revolt in the House of Commons. Uh, and uh, and it was actually the opposition that pretty much said, unless Winston is the Prime Minister, then uh, you know there's going to be big trouble. So Winston Churchill became the Prime Minister of United Kingdom uh, as a result of the, at the bequest of the Labour Party, not, in fact, his own party. And, in fact, uh, to start with... Um, the powers that be in the, in the Tory party very much wanted him to fail. So um, uh, the Battle of Britain uh, was was shortly after that, uh, and that paved the way uh, for for us certainly to take strong defensive position in the early part of the war. And then, of course, the Japanese effectively did us a very big favour by attacking Pearl Harbour in 1941, bringing 
uh, our much needed Anglo-Saxon allies, the Americans, into the war. At which point, I think probably the the balance of power shifted for for all time. So very quickly after 1940-41, where effectively we we had no hope, and as I say, uh, nobody would have had a bet on us at any price. Uh, probably by about 1942, we we probably got to a position where it would have been even money, the field or something. And of course, uh, from then on, I think it was just a matter of time. Um, as, as as the Germans started to lose a lot of a lot of men, obviously made a very probably one of the worst decisions in history, other than Napoleon's, who did the same thing. Uh, Napoleon basically uh, invaded uh, Russia in 1812, and uh, Hitler, having us on his on our knees, where we were only only people left, with obviously Russia as his ally at the time. Then basically the U-turn, and uh, instead of invading Britain, turned his tanks on his ally Russia, and uh, th- that probably probably saved us. Actually, probably the single biggest thing that saved us, other than the sea that goes around our, our lovely island. I think there's no doubt if we were part of mainland Europe, we would have we would have been defeated uh, probably by the end of 1940. To be honest with you, but anyway, so. Um, you have to say our um, our uh, our forebears uh, showed tremendous resolve and typical bulldog spirit in adversity. I think the British are uh, are probably the most amazing nation in the world when faced with a crisis. Uh, I can't think of any other country that would put up with being bombed day and night uh, by the Luftwaffe like we were, and the people still wanted to go on. Um, if you watch the recent Churchill film, you'll see. Um, that uh, Halifax and Chamberlain subjected uh, Churchill to immense pressure to um, to try to to, to to enter peace talks with Hitler uh, on the basis that and uh, basically shove everyone else. That was uh, that was that's the thing that makes me laugh is you know sold sold the rest of Europe. You know they can all get massacred by the Germans, but we'll we'll um, we'll negotiate a peace with him and everything will be all right. And I'm sure he'll let us have our empire because he he's not really interested in that. You know and. Um, Churchill, very much inspired by the people, you know, was very bravely fought against it. Unfortunately, uh, there was a dramatic uh, conclusion in the House of Commons where, fortunately, enough of his own side and the whole of the opposition very much supported his "We will never surrender" speech. You know, the one of I do know the one. We will fight them on the beaches, on the fields, in the towns, in the fields, and in the valleys. We will never surrender. Well, that one does. Uh, one One of the greatest speeches of all time, undoubtedly. So um, it just goes to show, really, how and this, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a lesson here. It's very interesting that uh, Jeremy Corbyn yesterday, for instance, said that if he had been the leader in the Second World War, he would have done a Halifax, uh, and he would have he would have tried to um, sue for peace, uh, which pretty much shows the character of the man, I think, and uh, and probably what you know what you would expect. Um, and of course, the other thing is is that. Um, it's also, I think, teaches us a lesson to do with Brexit because uh, I like one of Churchill's greatest uh, comments, which was, uh, "You cannot negotiate with a lion when your head is in its mouth," <laughs> which I think is a rather obvious but uh, rather good one. And so the point is, is obviously Theresa May effectively—that's um, what Theresa May effectively metaphorically did with the EU. Um, and the fact is that you know her policy threat was one of appeasement. I'm sure Margaret Thatcher or Winston Churchill or Donald Trump, for that matter, would have taken an entirely different approach to the, the EU. Um, and I think the important thing, Ross, is when you're negotiating is 
is not necessarily that. Um, so, for instance, uh, I had a conversation with a very old friend of mine who was my best client for a very long time, uh, who owes us a considerable amount of money. I think you were in the car, actually. I was in the car. Uh, and I basically said to him, um, look, I'm your friend. I'm not going to do anything nasty to you. Uh, but don't." But I also said, didn't I, that don't, underestimate, don't underestimate me that I would if I had to. And I think, you know, that's, that's, I think that's the lesson is that um, nobody necessarily wants to leave with no deal. But the fact is, is that people have to think that you would. Otherwise, your whole position is undermined. So um, I think the Second World War is probably one of the great miracles of all time, almost, and just shows what happens when you get a very strong leader um, who's prepared to believe in himself and, and, and not um, listen to the voices of the more vacillating and weak uh, and, and the tremendous indomitable spirit of the British people I think so by the time we got to 1944 we were very much on the march uh, of course Italy had pulled out of the German axis at that point so Italy were then on our side Mussolini was dead just a little history lesson for you Ross um, the Americans and the Australians are very much on the offensive against the Japanese, although the Japanese were still very resolute uh, with no thoughts of surrender, which is totally alien to their, their character. And we got to the point where, obviously, uh, we needed to liberate Europe effectively to win. So, you know, we couldn't actually march into Germany without having freed uh, Western Europe first. So, obviously, at that point... Um, you had Norway occupied, the Netherlands, Belgium, France, uh, to name a few. Um, again, for those of you who aren't so uh, uh, knowledgeable about the Second World War, obviously Spain was neutral. Did you know that, Ross? I did not know that, no. Spain had a fascist government under General Franco, uh, and I suppose they were, if anything, supporting the Germans, mm -hmm. but they, they actually uh, remained neutral throughout the war, so the Spanish were out of it, effectively. Obviously, the Russians, uh, by this time, were on our side. The Americans were in the war big time. And so um, uh, there were plans for quite some time to uh, obviously go back into Western Europe, liberate it, and, 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 then, and then obviously um, over, a, over a quite a long time um, effectively advance into Germany itself and um, force the Germans into surrender. So we had this uh, incredible, incredibly uh, massive logistical exercise, the greatest, uh, the greatest number of people and vessels uh, together in one place at any point in history, before or since. So um, effectively, you imagine having to get something like 130,000 men, plus you think about all the equipment that you would need to uh, go back into France and retake the country. The tanks and the supplies and the all the different vehicles, you know, uh, armored wagons and, of course, all the guns and all the missiles and all that. You know, it was just amazing. So, and obviously, all this had to be done in secret. Um, so, there's a very famous, I think it's Saunton Sands. So, those of you who don't know about Saunton Sands, uh, there's a there was a, that was basically where the uh, training for D-Day took place. Um, and there was a very uh, infamous uh, incident where several hundred, if not thousand, thousands of mostly American, I think, troops were killed by uh, a German U-boat or uh, vessel that uh, came across 
than while they were practicing. But obviously, fortunately, so although there was a, a tremendous loss of life, actually, and, it, and of course, because it was secret, it's only something that was been re- known recently. So, uh, you know, there was a tremendous price to pay in human sacrifice, even before we launched D-Day. Yep. Uh, one of the things that we're very proud about is uh, our office in Southwark, which is, for, the, for those of you who don't know, um, is, is just a few miles from uh, Fareham uh, in Hampshire. Uh, Southwark is a village of immense historical significance. Um, I believe there have been a settlement there since the Roman times, mentioned in the Doomsday book. Um, and uh, I, th- I believe was home to the first uh, commoner to become uh, uh, sort of landed gentry, became the Chancellor of, of England, a guy called Edward Wickham. Uh, and there's a lovely village called uh, Wickham and Wickham Vineyard named after him today. Um, and in fact, the uh, whole village of Southwark is still largely feudal. I believe it's impossible to own a freehold property there. So... Um, an entity called, I think it's a trust or something called uh, the Southwark Estates owns all the properties, so they all have the same colour. I can't remember what colour it is now. Obviously, if my partner Chris Coulter was here now, he would be able to do a very educated and learned uh, intervention. Um, if we jump on to the Second World War, um, it's quite amazing because uh, only about three miles away in Leon Solent, there's HMS Daedalus. Um, which uh, was which was and I think it's still recent, recently it may even still be actually is uh, one of the major uh, training and um, uh, centres of excellence in in the navy, just a few miles down the road, and um, for whatever reason uh, during the Second World War the powers that be decided that um, the logistical headquarters for the naval invasion would in fact be. Uh, centred around Southwark so um, little old Southwark uh, was home to General Eisenhower who later became the President of the United States um, and Field Marshal Montgomery uh, have you heard of Alamein Ross? I have yes so Field Marshal Montgomery Desert Rats yep. and all that so Field Marshal Montgomery uh, was responsible for the first major triumph of the British Army in the Second World War uh, when we beat the Germans at Tobruk and um uh, effectively um, became uh, the basically you know, beat them in North Africa, I suppose. Um, and what was very interesting is his opponent, and a very well-known and respected German, actually, is a guy called Erwin Rommel. He was known as the Desert Fox. That was his nickname. Have you heard of him? I have. Um, both Mr. Rommel and Mr. Montgomery ended up in uh, France, in northern France, in 1944. Rommel was in charge of the German army defending against the invasion and Montgomery was effectively the operational general on the ground but Eisenhower was overall in charge. Uh, One quite important historical note I think is that uh, although there were something like 39 or 40 divisions or regiments uh, deployed in D-Day of which 23 were American and 12 were British is that interest? the the uh, the British were actually in operational control on the day or the days as it as it were, uh, albeit the uh, the overlord was Eisenhower, who was obviously an American. So it was a very much a uh, joint a collaboration. Collaboration, yeah, and also um, there was, I know there was at least a whole regiment of Canadians uh, and, and and a lot of free French uh, and the usual suspects, Australians, New Zealanders, although. Um, 
the Australians in particular were probably more busy uh, in the Pacific fighting against the Japanese, who of course were a very real threat to, to their own independence and sovereignty uh, at that time. So I think um, I think the Japanese actually did successfully bomb Australia at least once in the war. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm trying to surmount about that side of things, but. Um, so effectively, you know, we and of course we also had, um, you know, a lot of Polish, Czechs, uh, people, you know, so basically uh, Norwegians probably. Um, so basically, all, all, all the um, all the uh, army people of the defeated nations that had managed to get out, pretty much were based in Britain. Um, you probably heard of a guy called General de Gaulle, uh, who was the leader of the Free French, and he became. Um, president of, of France. In fact, it was he that vetoed us joining the EU back when it was joined, which is quite bizarre, considering without him, he wouldn't, we wouldn't, he wouldn't even have a life. <laughs> so uh, the French have been the French all through history, so re- <laughs> read into that what, what, what you will. Uh, doesn't mean to say that I don't like brie and red wine and uh, baguettes, by the way, or, or hot chocolate in the morning. Uh, but I think people don't learn the lessons of history, and uh, history rarely gets it wrong. I think the, the words of the Abbas song are rather brilliant, actually, about the history book on the shelf is always repeating itself. So obviously you had Napoleon's mistake, which Hitler repeated. Um, people, for instance, have uh, repeatedly tried to invade the Balkans or, or mess around in the Balkans, and it's... Uh, Never worked out If you looked well. at one region of... Uh, another one that comes to mind is Afghanistan. You know, successive countries and uh, empires have... Um, have tried to uh, have tried to, to to get into Afghanistan and, and got a bloody nose all the time, you know, and a lot worse. So, as I say, it was a huge, massive logistical exercise to to uh, to launch the D-Day uh, landings. Uh, massive number of people, massive number of equipment had to be done in secret because obviously, you know, the, the Germans if the Germans had any any notice of it at all, then they obviously would have got their um, Messerschmitts and Heinkels up in the air and wreaked havoc on the uh, invading craft so have you ever been to Aramanche or the D-Day landings Ross? It's on my to-do list but I do definitely want to go there I was very fortunate when I was um, I think I don't know if I was 10 or 11 when I was in my last year at Wembledon School um, we actually that was the first time I've been fortunate to go twice once I think when I was at Dr Morgan's Uh, so when I was at Wembledon we actually very fortunately did a uh, a trip to uh, Normandy. So uh, the, the two things that I two things that I remember particularly uh, were the Bayou Tapestry, obviously, which yep. which um, uh, captures the the, uh, the the Battle of Hastings and all the events that led up to it, then and before and after, and um, and of course uh, the, uh, the, the, the the basically the harbours. I think it's called Mulberry Harbour. So effectively, what happened is is that. We constructed this uh, amazing uh, floating harbour, which we also had to transport from England over to France. Uh, and those harbours then allowed the uh, landings and the offensive manoeuvres to take place. So um, all of this, all of this, uh, all the secret stuff was all done in Southwark, little old Southwark. Uh, and having done some reading about it recently. Uh, uh, I believe that um, both Eisenhower, Eisenhower in particular, was frequently seen driving through the village, cheerily waving to all the little Southerners, 
Um, plus, he would have been a client, but he would have done his tax return uh, at the time. So he apparently was quite a popular. I think Montgomery was a rather more sort of earnest sort of fellow, you know. Um, so anyway, so uh, eventually, and there was a lot of. I think the the the, uh, the, the landing uh, was postponed on a, at least a couple of occasions because of poor weather. Uh, and I think that when the decision to press the green light or the button um, on the 6th of June was made, it wasn't, you know, uh, unanimous, shall we say. You know, it wasn't, not not all the members of the alliance, of, our, of the Allies, uh, necessarily thought that was the right thing to do. But nonetheless, uh, that's probably where um, having a, an, an American uh, supremo was a good thing, actually. Because I think on the whole, the Americans are probably a bit more gun ho than us. You know, as a nation, mm. do you think? I, I can imagine that. So you only got to look at Trump now. You know, Trump's like uh, the complete antithesis of Theresa May. You know, Theresa May would have been I shall tell you, I shall tell you, maybe, 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 we don't know. Um, that would be 1950 or something, and we still wouldn't have invaded him, I suspect. <laughs> so, um, so on the, on uh, June the sixth, 1944, uh, this massive uh, exercise took place. And effectively, uh, we targeted five beaches. Uh, bloody, I hope I remember them all now. Uh, Omaha, Utah, Juno, Sword, and Gold. Hooray! Oh, <laughs> I've been practicing that in the car, and I keep—I always forget one. So uh, I've actually managed to remember all five of them today. Um, I think it was uh, Omaha that was uh, particularly troublesome. Had uh, very steep cliffs. Be fortunate to go to all the beaches, actually. Um, and. Um, to be fair to the Americans, you know, you couldn't accuse them of giving themselves the easy ride like some people might, you know, so uh, there's no doubt that the most difficult beach the Americans landed on. Uh, in fact, they, they suffered uh, tremendous casualties. Uh, but you, you just imagine now landing on a beach with sheer cliff face, I don't know, and machine hundreds of metres, 200 metres high, straight up with a load of Germans with great big mortars and whatever standing at the top. And trying somehow to get up there, you know, is just well. well having, having seen Saving Private Ryan, which is oh yeah, of course, yeah, very good. Um, renowned as being highly accurate and you know very good, very bloodthirsty, very bloodthirsty indeed. Uh, terrifying comes to mind. Yeah, I think I think you're um, you're either uh, the sort of character that could cope with that, or you're not. If that doesn't sound too ridiculous, you know. Um, but you know, I think I think what was what was what was obviously clear was that enough people in the Allied side had enough resolve to very stoically would be a word stoically and bravely do their duty, not just on that day, but obviously on all the other days uh, during the war, which ultimately led to such great success. So on uh, on D Day, as I say, we stormed five beaches. Um, it wasn't uh, an over. You know, it wasn't like a five-minute wonder thing. You know, uh, we we turned up and the Germans said, "Oh, thanks, oh shit!" You know, uh, there's a lot of lot of uh, British and Americans running along here. We better give up. You know, it wasn't like that at all. It was a very protracted, drawn-out struggle. Uh, and eventually, obviously, we made some breakthroughs. Um, some battalions managed to get into uh, small French towns and 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 starting engaging against the Germans. Um, face-to-face, so to speak. And ultimately, of course, um, I'm not quite sure how many days it went on for, but it was at least two before. Um, I know Omaha, certainly after day one, the the Americans hadn't uh, advanced any further than the beach. I think they were stuck on the beach overnight. And obviously taking massive casualties 
as you can imagine, as the Germans were counter-offensing against them. Just beggars belief, really. Can't. Yeah, it must be. You know, it must be a, a very helpless feeling to be basically to have the sea behind you and the cliffs in front of you and nowhere to go. You know, uh, must have been, as you say, must have been a terrifying experience. So. Um, it was interesting. Uh, Trump said yesterday, I don't, th- I don't actually agree with this, but Trump uh, was interviewed and he said that um, he thought that arguably it was the greatest battle in history, is what he said. Mm. I, think, I think it's difficult as a, uh, as, as a non-recognised historian that I am for me to agree with that. I, th- I think there are more obvious battles. I think probably uh, in terms of the overall importance and significance of it and... The, the amount of total effort that went into it, um, you know, he might be right. It might be the single most important strategic situation in world history or something, you yeah. know. You know, obviously, you know, it's, it's very difficult to compare something like D-Day with Stalingrad, you know, which obviously, as you probably know, was a... You've probably seen the film The Sniper, have you? I have. Yeah, I thought you might do. <laughs> and Enemy of the Gates, I think, also was a... Yeah, I mean, that, you know, the, 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 I think... It must have been absolutely terrifying to have been a common German soldier uh, trapped in the Moscow winter, just as it was a Napoleonic soldier back in 1812. And obviously a lot of them died of frostbite, uh, were wearing clothes that were totally ill-suited to the terrain. Of course, it all comes down against that word we keep talking about in the podcast, that planning. One of the reasons that D-Day was a great success, it took it a great deal of audacity and courage, but it also succeeded because it was beautifully planned. Uh, probably the most technically brilliant and innovative, because of R&D claims every day, couldn't we? That's probably not a very good taste, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly the amount of innovation that would have been taking place on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, probably was, was immense. So fortunately for uh, for all of us that are alive today, D-Day was a massive success. All the beaches were taken. Uh, we managed to get a foot foothold um, in northern France, uh, and as they say, the rest is history. So what? So no more than eleven months later, uh, victory in Europe Day, May nineteen forty-five, I think. Yep. And I think victory in Japan Day wasn't for another four months. Um, so apologies if my dates are slightly wrong, but they're about right anyway. So the, the second date when the war finally ended is called VJ Day, uh, Victory in Japan Day. And the first one's called VE Day. Effectively, uh, the British people behaved like uh, VE Day was the end of the war. And you've probably seen the footreels of, of people dancing around Trafalgar Square and probably very inebriated and dancing in the fountains and kissing American soldiers and all that, you know. Uh, so I think, you know, today because uh, we we very much see ourselves as leaders of the community and people that want to change things I think respect and uh, respect for current for your for your current fellows and also the people that um, created the situation that allowed that allows us to, get to have this podcast really um, is very important to mark and show our respect um, I, I think Ross and I are not entirely sure what the madman Mr. Curry Mr. Curry, sorry, he's bad as well. <laughs> Mr. Armstrong, even um, 
he's he's sort of played around with today's episode a bit on his own. So uh, we, we, I think we, he's done a, a few readings from some of our staff members. Oh, that, that, that's, that's fantastic! So I won't say too much. We we have a tremendous story from uh, John Storer, um, who's been uh, a friend of uh, my great chum John Porteous for as many years as I can remember, and uh, quite proud to welcome uh, John into the, the Aspen Wake family. John, in fact, is going to head up uh, our Scottish effort, uh, and it's quite extraordinary because we never even thought about having a Scottish uh, presence, did we, Ross? We did not. So, uh, one of the things that's always nice to know is, uh, you know, if there are what stories there are lurking inside our own family, so to speak. And uh, very soon after I let the staff know that we were going to be talking about D-Day today. John uh, sent me a load of brilliant stuff about his maternal grandfather. I think his name was Roger Boston or something like that. I think it's George. George Boston? Yes, well, Roger was his brother, obviously. Uh, <laughs> you say Roger? George. 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 I think, I think no, it's George. I think I must be suffering from Alzheimer's. <laughs> I think I've been doing too much work on it recently. So I can't remember. I, can't, I just proved I can't remember a name for more than three seconds. So anyway, Mr. Boston, who is called now, um, he, he was actually... Um, he was present at the D-Day landings, and because um, he was a highly accomplished and technical engineer, he was. But what was even more remarkable is that he played a pivotal role in helping Barnes Wallace to invent the bouncing bomb. Um, and I'm sure if you haven't watched the film, I'd be amazed because I've probably seen it about 133 million times myself. The Dambusters. The Dambusters. Yes, indeed. So we're very proud of uh, John's uh, maternal grandfather. Um, and uh, I think Ross and I believe that Drew has uh, some some tidbits later on in this podcast uh, that are more relevant to do with that. So I think um, from my point of view, um, we just like to um, just we did, we did this uh, podcast today in recognition of the supreme uh, effort made by. Uh, really all the British people during the war uh, and, and notably marking the 75th anniversary of D-Day so um, we'll never forget and uh, we're very proud just hope that a few of us are still left with some of the spirit uh, that prevailed in those times um, on the music front uh, just to say I, I've chosen two uh, pieces of music today that I felt were reflective of the period um, as Drew said in his opening remarks, so I picked a satirical number by the great Noel Coward. So I probably Drew's probably not entirely sure who he is, but Noel Coward was an impresario, I think you'd say he was. An incredibly talented uh, playwright, actor, um, close to being a genius, I would say. Quintessentially English. Um, probably there aren't, aren't, aren't people like Noel Coward around anymore. And I just love the, the whole feel behind don't be beastly to the Germans and if you look into the verses like I have it's sort of one of those songs where you think you know it sounds like he's sort of being nice to them but actually there's an underlying message uh, but it's done in such a clever clever way and because as you as those of you that listen to me regularly will know that I'm the most politically incorrect person that was ever born just about uh, that was just my way of um of being able to hide behind Noel Coward in making a statement which uh, which I won't say any more about uh, the music that hopefully we're playing out with today is by the Andrew sisters who were I think probably the biggest act in the western world at that time 
Um, a very famous number, actually, called the Boogie Woogie Boogle Boy. Try saying that after a few points, Ross. The Boogie Woogie Boogle, Boogle Boy. Boogle Boy. The Boogie Woogie Boogle Boy from Dirty Boo. Uh, very typical of the time. Um, you wouldn't, you wouldn't certainly wouldn't have records like it now. Probably people with no talent, like the Spice Girls and um, who's the other people? Um, Girls Aloud and people like that. Uh, they probably would have had some sort of go in it whether they would have pulled it off I, I'm not sure because um, uh, the Andrews sisters could actually sing which, um, is which quite obviously helps but I think the Andrews sisters song um, really captures the mood of the time beautifully so we've got two contrasting songs one uh, one satirical clever political satire on the whole situation and how we uh British and notably the English actually thought about the Germans at the time and then uh, if you like uh, almost like the number one hit from from the 40s uh, from the Andrews sisters so uh, from my point of view um, I'd just like to thank uh, Drew as always for organising today and Ross uh, sitting opposite me and, and putting up with the chuntering um, I hope uh, those of you who are listening to this uh, learned something today if you would like to um to learn more or ask any questions then feel free to email me on paulaspen-wake.co.uk at any time about anything I've talked about historically or otherwise uh, failing that I leave you in the capable hands of Mr Curry thank you very much Paul and we'll be putting some of the stories of some of our staff up on the website so you can listen to the podcast and read all the extra details which very very interesting stories um, some nice photos and with that, we will leave you with Paul's next song, and we'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Hello, hello. Bet you didn't think you were going to hear from me again, but I am back, and I'm going to share a couple of little stories from um, Aspen Waite colleagues. So this one's from John Storer, who works for our Scottish division. He sent us some information about his maternal grandfather, George Boston, and his experience in World War II. A trained mechanic in a tank regiment, George was tasked with secret work altering Lancaster bombers to carry a special kind of weapon, the bouncing bomb. This was made famous in the film The Dam Busters. In May 1943, the RAF destroyed the Munar and Edessey dams during Operation Chastise using the bombs. In 1945, George befriended a Dutch family, and on the day his unit left, he placed a bar of chocolate and a pack of cigarettes for the son, who later described George as a true gentleman to a Dutch radio station. Aspen Waite actually have an office in Southwick, and this next little piece of writing is written by Chris Coulter, leader of our Southwick office. It gives some history around the role that Southwick played leading up to D-Day. From 1939 to the spring of 1944, life in Southwick was little different from any other British village at the time. Rationing, utility goods and the general provisions of wartime were experienced by all the inhabitants. Being close to Portsmouth, air raid warnings were frequent and indeed the large number of poorly aimed and jettisoned bombs made their marks in the local fields. The parish had its own air raid wardens and home guard platoon who stood to night after night, ready to defend the village against the expected invasion of Nazi paratroopers and armoured panzer divisions. At the outbreak of the Second World War, the navigation school and its shore base HMS Dryad was located in Portsmouth Dockyard.
By 1941, HMS Dryad was moved to Southwick Park and the village became quite used to the sight of service uniforms. The Golden Line public house became the unofficial officer's mess and the bars were used for briefings and examinations. When, in spring of 1944, Southwick House was selected to be forward headquarters for Operation Overlord and was sealed off from the rest of the establishment, everyone in the village knew that there was something in the wind and that very shortly the balloon would go up. At the time, however, what the village folk did not realise was that the cheery American general who would habitually wave to the local children from his staff car whilst being driven from his woodland camp to Southwick House was in fact General Dwight D. Eisenhower, the supreme commander and the man whose shoulders the future of the free world depended. By contrast, General Bernard Montgomery was already something of a war hero from his desert campaigns and was instantly recognised on his frequent excursions into the village. In the weeks before the invasion, Prime Minister Churchill was a frequent visitor to Southwick. It was only when the Normandy bridgehead was well established and Southwick House had been abandoned by the headquarters staff that people realised the part that their little Hampshire village had played in the greatest invasion the world had ever seen. There's actually a little more to this article by Chris Coulter and anyone who wants to check that out, please look on our website, aspenwake.co.uk. It's in the news section. Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowing reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. They made him blow a bugle for his uncle Sam. It really brought him down because he couldn't jam. The captain seemed to understand. Because the next day the cap went out and drafted a band. And now the company jumps. When he plays Reveille, he's the boogie-woogie bugle boy of Company B. A toot, a toot, a toot-dilly-a-da, toot-dilly-a-da, to the bar. In boogie rhythm, he can't blow a note unless the bass and guitar is playing with him. He makes a company jump when he plays Reveille. He's the boogie-woogie bugle boy of Company B. He was a boogie-woogie bugle boy of Company B. As a and when he plays, he makes a company jump A to the bar. He's a boogie boogie bugle boy of Company B. Do 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 da da do da da. Do do he blows it A to the bar. He can't blow a note if the bass and guitar isn't with him. And the company jumps when he plays Reveille. He's a boogie boogie bugle boy of Company B. Reveille, he's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. 
Revelling. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. Hey, 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 hey,